morning, everybody. Man, I love this time of year, don't you guys? I love it because you think about, uh, you guys, who here has dogs? You go for a walk with a dog, and this time of year, you smell the barbecues, maybe take the cat for a walk, Amanda, you know, and put a little leash on her. It'd be weird, but you know, people, you know, you never know nowadays. I, nowadays, you go for a walk, and you got people walking their dogs in a baby, like a, like a dog baby stroller. It's like the weirdest thing. It's like, dude, it's an animal. Let the, let the thing walk, right? But no, I say all that to say because I just love this time of year because it's like you smell the barbecues. You smell the, you know, people have, you know, out back having fires. You smell that, that, that campfire smell. And it, I just love this time of year. And it just makes me excited. It makes me excited for football. But Christy keeps telling me, hey, we can't wish the summer away. But I'm like, man, I just want to get back to football season. The USFL really isn't the same. Am I wrong? I mean, it's just, it's just not the same. But as we get into our lesson here this morning, uh, we're going to do part two. And can we... Know God. If you look on that screen behind me, and this is a, a continuation of, uh, of last week's lesson, and when we, I ask that question, can we know God? Because I think oftentimes we make the assuming, we make the assumption, uh, and we assume that people know the God that we worship, the God that we serve. I know we're Christians. We know the God we worship. We know the God that we serve. We know He's the one and true and only living God. But the world doesn't necessarily see it that way. You guys have heard me give you some of the stats in the last year or so. And I mentioned that, you know, it used to be once upon a time in America, 83 to 87 percent of Americans believed in the God of the Bible. Now that number is less than 50 percent. And so when we talk about the God of the Bible, we can't just assume that everybody knows the God that we're talking about. Why do I say that? Because there's thousands of gods uh, really, probably hundreds of thousands of gods around the world that have been made up in the hearts and minds of men uh, through our imaginations, and they're inanimate objects. These gods have never once appeared. These gods have never prophesied. They've never uh, done miracles. They've never came and walked amongst man. They've never done any of these things. And yet people worship these little figurines uh, as, if they're, as if they have some form of power. And we need to make sure, brethren, that we're not doing, as I mentioned a couple weeks ago in our Wednesday night Bible study, how I often said we, I think we have a distorted view of, uh, of, of what, what and who God is by how we look at human rights. You see, we start to look at the world and we start to say, well, I believe, and so then we create a God in our mind that actually, well, uh, 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 is really an image of what we want to believe and what we, what we want to see in God. So we start to create a God in our own mind. And it really gives us a, a distorted view of human rights. And so instead of trying to put God in a box of our own creation, why don't we allow the Holy Scriptures to tell us who God is? You see, because the reason why I started preaching this lesson last week is because as Christians, we need to know who God is. We need to know His nature. We need to know all of the, uh, the characteristics of God so that way when we go out and we teach the world about God and we go out and we evangelize, we can then do like Paul did in Acts chapter 17 on Mars Hill when he spoke to the people of Athens. He explained to them who God was. He's seen the objects of their worship. He's seen all the various, uh, all the various uh, uh, altars and, and all the various descriptions. He says, I, I, I see that you seem to be a very religious people. You guys are so religious that you got, a, you got an altar with the inscription to the unknowing God. He said, this God whom you don't know, I declare to you. And so then he gave a little bit of a history lesson. 
And so we're going to pick up on that lesson here this week. Last week in part one, we looked at the idea that God is alive. He's not some just inanimate object, you know what I mean, that's just a figurine that you got to dust off once in a while. The God that we worship, the one and only true God, is alive. He's a living God. We looked at the fact that he's a spirit. And that, that, he, uh, that we, like God, being made in his image or nature, we display intelligence, emotions, uh, ability to communicate, uh, to know right from wrong, to have a conscience. And so we also looked at the fact that he was eternal. And so this week we're going to continue on. We're going to look at the word of God. We're going to look at the creation around us. And we're going to start uh, to, to really hopefully finish this lesson to see who God is. Can we know God? What does the scripture have to say since it's his holy word? So yes, he's alive. Yes, he's a spirit. Yes, he's eternal. But did you also know that that, that God that we serve that's alive and that is a spirit that's eternal is also all-sovereign? He's an all-sovereign spirit. And well, really, what does that even mean? I mean, I know a lot of people, it's not really words that we use in our modern vernacular, but when we ask the question, what is all-sovereign spirit means, it just simply means he has all power. He's supreme. He has all authority. There's no one greater or more powerful. He's the, he's the best of the best, right? And so he has all power. It makes me think of the first passage of Scripture from the Scriptures. In Acts chapter 17 and verse 25 and 26, we looked at this last week a little bit, but I want to give a couple reminders here. In Acts 17 and verse 25 and 26, we see the Apostle Paul telling the people of Athens this. He says, nor is God served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to people life. See, he gives them breath. He gives them all things. And God made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation. So what do we learn there in Acts chapter 17? We learn in scripture that the creation was according to his sovereign will. And that all things that were done were done because of the, of the plan that he had put in place before the foundation of the world. God had made the choice to give life to man. And he also made the choice to give the blessings of life. He literally gives us everything that we need to sustain life. The air we breathe, the water we drink, you can't have life without it. When you look at all of creation and how everything was done in a specific order, in order to that way we can have life and sustain life here on this planet. We also know that in those verses, God also sets the limits on the boundaries of a nation's growth. We also know in that passage of scripture that uh, he also sets limits as to the aggression that can be uh, shown from one nation to another. And he also sets the times when nations will rise and fall. We know this because God has all knowledge. We know here in scripture that he has all sovereign. He's all sovereign, all, all powerful. And in the Bible, or really in, in man, we, we create terms for these things. And it's called omnipotent. And when you look at this term, omnipotent, it simply just means all powerful. But the problem with some of these terms are, is if God is all powerful and he has the power to do all things, then people come to this uh, a warped view by not really fully, fully understanding and knowing who God is without fully understanding his nature. They'll say things like, well, if God has all power, then he must not want to use it or he must be an unloving God because why do we have all the pain and suffering that we see in the world around us? If God has all the power uh, and, and, and can control everything, 
Why do people lose their children so early in life? Why do babies die? Why do people get all these diseases and cancer? Why do we have all this evil, pain, and suffering that we see around the world? He must not be all-powerful, or he must not be a loving God is often the conclusion that they come to. And oftentimes we look at this, and people who don't understand God's nature usually draw these false conclusions. Does God have the a power to, uh, to stop death? Absolutely. But that's not what he chooses to do because we have to remember why death is here to begin with. Why do we have evil, pain, and suffering? Why are those things in the world? Why is there death in the first place? Because mankind, his creation, violated his law. We had one law that was given to Adam and Eve in the garden. They broke that. And because of that, there was a curse that was placed on mankind. And there was a curse that was placed on the world. And so ever since then, death entered into the picture. And so our bodies are breaking down. And then over multiplied uh, centuries, we know that what do we have? There's gen genetic mutations that enter into the gene pool. And so, brethren, there's lots of reasons why we suffer. But none of them are because of God. What we do know about God is, be, even though he's not going to take death away, he decided to put a plan of redemption in place. God, because he loves us, he chose to send his son to come to this earth to die to, uh, to secure a means of salvation for mankind. So that way, his resurrection, and likewise, will then cause, uh, allow us to be resurrected at the appropriate time. So, brethren, let us never forget why there is evil, pain, and suffering. Why there is death in the world to begin with. And that is because of the sin of man. That is why we suffer these things. It's not because of God. And so we shouldn't, uh, we have to understand that God cannot and will not violate his nature in order to overlook the sin of man. It's not like some people who want to think of God as like Grandpa God, right? Ah, boys will be boys. Hey, they're going to do some stupid things. Hey, let's just overlook that one. And how often do we look at God in that type of mindset to where, hey, boys will be boys. Don't worry about it. You know what I mean? They're, they're good kids. We need to understand, brethren, that God cannot and will not violate his nature by fellowshipping with sin. But what we do know is that God is patient with us. And that is the good news. Because in 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 9 on the screen behind me, it says the Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but it says that he is patient towards you, not wishing for any of you to perish, but for all individuals to come to repentance. When you look at that simple verse, brethren, that gives us the hope that we need. And that, that is why we should be thankful that God has not come back yet. Because some of us need to, to clean up a few areas of our lives. And we need to make sure that we're doing all that God calls us to do. And so he is patient with us, not wishing that any of us should perish. So, brethren, remember that we can learn much about the nature of God by learning about our own nature and our own selves. However, when we think about these traits, when you think about the traits of uh, omnipotence, omniscience, omnipresence, we quickly realize the supernatural uh, nature of deity. We quickly realize when we start to study this out that God's ways are so much greater than man's ways, are they not? We like God, and when we think about it, we like God are an eternal spirit, but we have limited power. God has unlimited power. But many times we want to we limit God's power because of our own thinking. 
And because we wanted to try to line God up with, a, uh, with the, the, the creation that we form in our minds. And we want to uh, attribute to God uh, attributes that we want the God that we're willing to serve. You see, the idea that the idea is that it's not a God that we're willing to serve. No, God is the creator God. He gets to set the boundaries. He gets to set the times of our habitation. He gets to set the rules. And then we get to determine whether or not we will follow said rule. If we don't follow the rules, that's okay. You don't have to. But don't, don't cry if you go to hell. I've often heard people say, well, if God's a loving God, he'll never send somebody to hell. God doesn't send anybody to hell. If you go to hell, it's because of your own choices and the consequences to your choices. The God of love is a God who's patient, like 2 Peter says in 3 and 9, who doesn't want you to perish. He wants you to repent. But you have to make the choice to repent of the sin in your life. Brethren, we think about this information here this morning, and now we turn uh, to the next one, which is omniscient. Omniscient simply means all-knowing. And in order to really fully look at this, I want you to open your Bibles to Psalm 139. I'll have some of it on the screen behind me, but I want you to also, I know some of you like to follow along. This, we'll look at a, a big section of this. Psalm 139, and, and the idea of God being all-knowing and having all knowledge, Psalm 139 really sums some things up for us. In Psalm 139, starting in verse 1, notice what the scriptures say. It tells us, O Lord, you have searched me and made known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You understand my thoughts from afar. You scrutinize my path and my lying down and are intimately acquainted with all my ways. Even before there is a word on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know all things. You have enclosed me behind and before and laid your hand upon me. And such knowledge is wonderful, too wonderful for me. It is too high. I cannot attain it. And then we stay in that same chapter and we look at verses 13 through 16 now. In 13 through 16 it says, You formed my inward parts. You wove me in my mother's womb. I give thanks to you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works and my soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the depths of the earth. Your eyes have seen my unformed substance and in your book were, were all written the days that were ordained for me, when as yet there is not, not one of them. You know, I look at these verses here in 1 through 6 and 13 through 16 of Psalm 139. And the point of looking at this passage of 139 is to realize that God knows everything. He knows everything. He knows when we stand. He knows when we sit. He knows what we think. He knows what we speak. And so the idea is that God knows us even from the point of conception. Even before any human had any idea that something was conceived with inside of them, God had known. Because God is the one who formed you in, formed your inward parts. God is the one who gives you your spirits. And so, brethren, imagine the magnitude of having all of that knowledge for every human being that has ever lived on this planet. God knows, it tells us in Matthew chapter 10, he knows, the, he, numbered, he knows the number of hairs on your head. It tells us in uh, Psalm 147 that God knows the, the, knows the number of stars in the sky. Hebrews chapter 4 and 13 on the screen behind me says, And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are laid bare and open to his eyes. 
So you think about this, these passages of Scripture, and you ask yourself, why is it important that God has all that knowledge? Why is it important that God knows when we stand, when we sit, what we think, what we speak? It's important because of this next passage of Scripture. In 2 Corinthians, in chapter, uh, chapter 5 and verse 10, it tells us, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one of us may be compensated, recompensed, for his deeds done in the body, according to what is done, whether good or whether bad. As I said a moment ago, if God's a loving God, people say, he surely won't send anybody to hell. God doesn't send anybody to hell. You stand before God based on your own merits. If you've lived a horrible life, a sin-filled life, a worldly life that rejects God, rejects his principle, his moral absolutes, it's on you. If you're faithful unto God and you live according to the word of God and you love God with all your heart, mind, and soul and you, and you, and you humble yourself before the mighty hand of God, then you receive salvation. That, again, is because of the, your deeds done in the body. Brothers and sisters, God is able to do this because there is nothing hidden from his sight. <clears throat> Once again, we marvel at God. We marvel at the greatness of God and understanding that even though we are all eternal spirits, that God's ways are so much greater than ours. Before I move on from omnipotence and omniscience, people often misunderstand this one as well. And I say that because people often wrongly conclude, if God knows everything, well, then he must be responsible for everything. Have you ever heard something like that? Or an argument that is similar to that? Well, there's problems with that assumption. Because the assumption is false. We, and I know the assumption is false. is Just because God knows your past, your present, and your future, that doesn't suggest that God predetermines everything that you're going to do. God didn't create us to be robots and then, uh, and then use like a computer program and programmed us to what we're predeterminedly going to do. No, God has given us free will. He has given us the ability to choose. Why? Because it goes back to him being all sovereign. He gave us this ability because he wants his people, he wants his creation to choose to love him, to choose to uh, uh, honor him, to choose to obey him. Brothers and sisters, now we turn on and we go to the next aspect of what we can know from God by studying out the scriptures. Can we know God? And this next one is omnipresence. And it simply means all presence are everywhere. But once again, we see that when people study the, out the scriptures, they often confuse their, they're often confused as to what this really means. They think that God is everywhere simultaneously. But that's not actually the case. Because we go back to Psalm 139, and we're going to look at verses 7 through 12 now. When you look at Psalm 139, verse 7 through 12, like I said, many people in the world think that if God knows all things, that he must likewise be everywhere simultaneously. But don't allow, the, don't allow yourself to forget what we're reading here in Psalm 139. The very theme of this, uh, of this uh, psalm is the knowledge of God. So listen to what it says here in verses 7 through 12. Where can I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, whole, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the dawn, if I dwell to the remotest parts of the sea, even there your hand will lead me and your hand will lay hold of me. If I say, surely the darkness will overwhelm me and the light around me will be night, 
Even the darkness is not too dark for you, and the night is as bright as day to you. Darkness and light are alike to you. What is the point of that passage of Scripture? The text is often taken out of context in the idea that people think, well, God must be everywhere simultaneously. But the, the theme of Psalm 139 is the knowledge of God. And so the text is simply stating that one cannot escape God's knowledge. And if you think about it, you guys remember the story of Jonah? God gave Jonah a task. He gave him something to do, and Jonah fled to the, to the, to the furthest ends of the earth. He was trying to escape God to get away from going to the, to the, uh, to the enemies of the Israelites. And so, it's a, from going to the Ninevites, and yet Jonah could not escape God because God's knowledge, he knows all things. He wasn't, you know, there as a shadow following him throughout, throughout his journey. You think of Ananias and Sapphira, right, in Acts chapter, I think, 5. What, what, what did they do? They concocted the scheme in order to take advantage of the church to make themselves seem uh, more benevolent than they really were because they wanted to be like Barnabas was. They wanted to be glorified and lift up. And yet God knew exactly what they did. It's the knowledge of God. It wasn't that he was there uh, you know, sitting in the background while they're making these decisions. It's talking about the knowledge that God has. And once again, it is God's ways are so much greater than man's ways that we cannot often understand many of these things. Because I think if we tried to understand these things, our brains would break. Because we are not able to understand all things God. We look at the next attribute, and it is God is love. This is the one that everybody likes to focus on, right? Everybody you talk to in the world, no matter what they believe, they believe that God is love, and surely God is not going to cast anybody into hell. Surely he'll be okay. It's okay if I go this way or if I do this or if I do that, because he's love. Because the Bible tells me that God is love. Brothers and sisters, this trait is often greatly misunderstood. For many people, this is the only trait that, uh, of God that they wish to focus on. Why? Because they try to create God in an image that they're willing to worship. And so they make God into something he's not. And they only look at one attribute and not looking at the, total, the totality of the nature of God. And so you look at this information here. And I, I look at the fact that they say God is love. Many people want to look at God with, through the ideology of like universalism. And where they wish to believe God is going to save everyone. I've never been to a funeral that the individual wasn't in a better place. God is going to save everyone, and everybody has the mindset, no matter how they lived, that, hey, they're in a better place now. Where does that mindset, that thought process come from? It comes from the ideology of universalism, because God is a God of love, and surely that he loves us, his love will be greater than his justice. And so, brothers and sisters, I know that God first loved us when we were sinners, and we know that he showed us that true love encompasses everything, and that he cared about man, and that he created a way of redemption for man. In 1 John 4.19, the Bible tells me that we love because he first loved us. And we think about examples of love. Many people know John 3.16. It's one of the most popular verses of the Bible. God so loved the world that he gave his only son to die for us. It's not the complete verse, but that's the point. That's what they look at. He loves us so much that he even sent his son to die for us. So surely he's not going to condemn us. And then I think of Romans chapter 5 and verse 8. 
And in Romans 5 and 8, it actually says, Instead of hating sinful man, God extended his love by providing his son to die that forgiveness might be made available. And that's why so many say, you just have to believe. You just have to ask Jesus into your hearts. And that's all you have to do, and you shall be saved. Brethren, we know that's not all that we have to do, but yet that's what people learn, and that's what people accept. We need to understand that God cares for all of his creation. We need to understand that he knows every person and that he's interested in every person. We need to understand that God wants you to be his child and eagerly wants to take care of you. And he's concerned about what concerns you because he is a God of love. But you know what God is also? And this is the last one before I shut this lesson down. God is a God of justice. He is a God of love, but he is also a God of justice. And this trait is probably the most overlooked one because now there's personal accountability attributed to the God of justice. But people don't want to look at the idea of personal accountability. And so what is justice? We know that God is fair in his judgments. In judgment, man receives what he deserves based on his either obedience or disobedience to the will of God. God always keeps his word. God cannot violate his nature. And so he will extend grace to those who obey his commandments, and he will punish those who don't walk according to his commandments. How do I know this? Because it's literally what the Bible says. In Acts chapter 17, in verse 30 and 31, it says, Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere must repent, should repent, because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising them from the dead. So you look at this passage of scripture, brethren. What is the point? God commands man to repent of their sins. But we also know that God has appointed a day when he will judge the world through Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. I think of Romans chapter 11. And I think of verse 22 on the screen behind me. Behold the kindness and behold the severity of God to those who fell, severity. But to you, God's kindness, if you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you will likewise be cut off. What is the point of that? The point is that conditional clause there, if. You'll continue in his kindness if you continue to be faithful. If you continue to do the things that God causes you to do. God extends severity to those who reject him, to those who are disobedient, and to those who lack faith. And God uh, extends goodness and love to those who are faithful unto his will. So brethren, as I close this down, once again, God's ways are always uh, just. God deals justly with his creation. He shows no partiality. He shows no favoritism. It doesn't matter if you're rich or poor, educated or uneducated. We will all be judged with the exact same standard. We will all be judged according to God's word, according to his will. Either we are faithful and obedient unto the Lord, or, we're, or we lack faith and we're disobedient to the Lord. You get to choose. God doesn't predetermine all that you're going to do in your life. You get to choose how you will live. The only key is he has all knowledge, past, present, future. So he knows what you're going to do. How does that happen? I have no idea because I'm not God. And I'd probably break my brain trying to figure it out. 
And so I look at the word of God, brethren, and these are the things that it tells me. It says God is alive. He is a spirit. He is eternal. He's omniscient. He's omnipotent. And, and, and what's the last? <laughs> yes, omnipresent. And so we know this because that is what the word is telling us. That is what his holy word identifies with and tells us who he is. And so we need to know these facts. Because how can I go out into a world in America where 50% of the country, less than 50% of the country, now believe in the God of the Bible, how can I go out and teach them about the plan of uh, salvation, about the scheme of redemption, if I don't even know who God is fully? Because they're going to ask questions, they're going to make assumptions, and how can I then speak to them about God if I don't even know the nature of God? So we need to know all of these things so that we can explain to our friends, our family members, co-workers, exactly who God is and why it matters. And so brethren, that is the end of today's lesson. That's the end of this little two-part series. Can we know God? And the answer is an, a, a resounding yes. And if we don't know God, how could I ever explain to somebody who the God of the Bible is? Just like the Apostle Paul, when he was speaking to the Gentiles on Mars Hill, he had to then explain to them from the beginning. He went all the way back to creation and explained to them exactly who God is, what he's done, and why it matters. And we need to have that same knowledge. If you're here today, brethren, and you're uh, not a child of God and you wish to be Become a Christian. You wish to become a child of God by making uh, by uh, by by being baptized for the remission of your sins, by receiving the gift of the Holy Spirit, by being added to the church. You could do that today. But maybe you're amongst us today and you're struggling because you just know you haven't been as faithful as you want to be, and you're struggling in your faith. And maybe you want the prayers of the church. Maybe you want somebody to help hold you accountable. You could come forward and ask us for that prayer here today. Maybe you've been away from the church for a while and you wish to be restored back unto the church, restored back unto God, and to ask the saints for help. Brethren, do that as we stand and sing the song of invitation.